Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Mark, the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be in verses 3 through 9 of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark this morning. The title of this morning's message is An Extravagant Gift. An Extravagant Gift. This morning we dive into a section of Scripture where there is a tremendous event going on. Uh, We have the anointing of Jesus by Mary of Bethany, or Mary, sister of Lazarus, is how she is sometimes known. We look into this gift, and if we're not careful, we will overlook the significance and the importance of what is going on here, and we may tend to see it as just one event in a series of events. But upon closer examination, there is really an awful lot going on here. It reminds me of something that has happened in my lifetime from time. And I'm sure that all of you will be able to relate to this as well. But time to time in my life, there has been something given to me or a gift bestowed upon me or something handed to me or something placed in my care where the value of the item is no way related to the worth of the item, if that makes sense. The value of the item to me, has nothing to do with what its monetary value is. What I'm saying is sometimes people have given me items where uh, financially they may not be worth very much. I might not be able to take them to the market and sell them for a high price. But to me, those items are priceless. They have, they have no sticker value. No amount of money could purchase those items. Uh, uh, one such item is a picture drawn for me by a young lady at this church on my third Sunday preaching here. She presented this picture to me that she had drawn, and I can tell you that if I were to take it to an art museum or something, they may look at it and they may say it's nice, but it wouldn't be worth very much financially, but there's not a person or an auction house in the world that could pry that picture out of my hands because it was given to me with the heart of a child that said, I love you, keep preaching what you're preaching, keep doing what you're doing, and she had a picture of of Jesus. It was just amazing. I still have the picture, by the way. And no one will ever get it. It sits in my Bible in my office where I study and I see it every single week. And most of you right now can think of an item in your life, something that someone has given to you that may not really be worth very much financially. Or maybe it is worth something financially, but it's worth much more to you than it's worth to the rest of the world because of the attitude and the meaning of the person who gave it to you. And this story in the Gospel of Mark is an account of such a time where the value of the item is not nearly as important as what the item represents and what the gift represents in its spiritual context and in its spiritual meaning. Excuse me. So please stand together as we honor the reading of what I truly believe is the holy words of our holy God. Before we read, do you ever think about that? Do you ever think that as we stand together on Sunday morning and I say, please stand in honor and reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God, do you ever let that sink in? That we believe that these words on this paper are no less than the inspired holy words of our holy God to His people. Sometimes that just smacks me right in the face through the week. And I just wanted to share that with you. That we're getting ready to read what we believe to be the holy God speaking to us through His word. And that 
that should inspire some awe inside of us every time we open our copy of God's Word. But let's read from chapter 14, beginning in verse 3 of the Gospel of Mark. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. You have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would do what only you can do. And that is let your Holy Spirit dwell among your people this morning, Lord God. God, draw us nearer to you as we reflect upon your word, Lord God. And God, you change us this morning, Lord. God, we promise that we will be faithful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all that you do, God. And it is in your holy name that we pray and all of God's people said, and you may be seated. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the scene that is set. The scene that is set here in Mark chapter 14. We find ourselves, contextually speaking, in a time just six days to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In six days' time, he will be hanging upon a wooden cross. He's going to be heading off on his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which is the very next day from where this feast takes place. We read from John 12, 12, John's gospel account of this story, and we see that that this is just the day before his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So it's six days prior to his crucifixion. Now, Jesus has really upset the Pharisees just prior to this event. If we look in verses 1 and 2 of this gospel account, we see that they are trying to put Jesus to death. They're scheming for how they're going to put Jesus to death, but they decide to wait until after the feast of the Passover the following week. And so what did Jesus do that had made them so mad? What got them to this place that they're so angry? Well... This event is taking place in Bethany. And if you'll recall, Bethany is a little town just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And what had recently happened in this town of Bethany... You remember the story in John chapter 11, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible because we find our shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept in John chapter 11. And so in this story of Jesus in Bethany town, he gets there. Lazarus is dead and in a tomb. And Jesus has him roll the stone away and speaks those words, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out of the grave. Now, come on, y'all got to get there with me just a minute. I said that Jesus said, move that stone out of the way. He stood at the mouth of the stone. He said, hey, dead man, get up. And the dead man, he got up. Now, come on now, if you can't say amen on that, it's going to be a long sermon, all right? I said that Jesus, hang on, I want to make sure you got what I was saying. All right, Jesus gets to Bethany. This is Bethany. Jesus says, where's the tomb? They say, here's the tomb. He goes to the tomb. He says, move the stone. They say, the body stinks. He said, I didn't say that. I said, move the stone. 
They moved the stone. Jesus, now Jesus said inside that tomb, he said, Lazarus, get up. And Lazarus said, what do you want, Jesus? Here I come and here he come out. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Jesus said, Lazarus, get up. Lazarus got up. And that's why the Pharisees said, wait a minute. We got a problem on our hands. This man's calling dead man up out of the grave. That dead man's going to testify about Jesus Christ that he called him from the dead. We got a big problem on our hands. They ain't going to believe nothing we say with this guy preaching around, telling everybody, hey, I'm Jesus and I raised a dead man from the grave and he here he is right beside me. Hey, dead man, tell him what was happening. And Lazarus said, I was asleep. And I heard my Savior cry. He said, get up. So I got up. Now I want you to think about them Pharisees and why they were so mad. They said, my whole religious system is torn. Everything I've got on these people has been broken. Everything that I had putting my thumb on them and holding them back, telling them how many times they had to wash their hands before they ate, telling them how many times they had to do this. And here comes this Jesus who says, all that's hogwash. I'm here to perfect the law. I'm on a mission that my father sent me to do. And we had them believing we were right, but now he's calling dead men out of the grave and we'll never be able to do that. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're so mad about what's happened in Bethany town. That they're seeking now. They said, we got to get rid of this Jesus problem right quick. If you look in John's account of the gospel, you'll find that they also said, we got to get rid of this Lazarus problem too. Because even if we kill Jesus, Lazarus is still going to testify as to what happened. Even if we kill Jesus, his people are still going to testify to what he did. Amen. His people, no matter what you do, no matter what you try to do, his people that have been touched by the hand of Jesus, hang on, it's going to get good today. He, his people still testify as to what Jesus did for them. You can't thwart the gospel no matter how hard you try. And the Sadducees, if they had one thing going for them, they realized if we don't get rid of Lazarus too, he's going to tell people about Jesus. And so the place... Uh, part of the scene has been said. It's in Bethany town where Jesus has just called a dead man back into life and they gather for dinner. But let's look also at the people that are present at the scene. First we see Simon and he is described as Simon the leper. Now we don't know for sure when this particular leper was healed. We don't know for sure if his healing is one of the healings recorded in scripture. But what is obvious to us is that he had been healed, and he had been healed by Jesus. You know, he wouldn't have been able to have people to his house if he hadn't been healed. That's how we know he's been healed, because in that day, if he had leprosy, he wouldn't have been allowed to interact with other people. He would have been banished. He would have been secluded. He would have been set apart and set aside so that he wouldn't infect everyone that he came along with. But here we see that Simon's having a dinner party. And that lets me know if Simon's having a dinner party, that he's inside his home. And if he's inside his home, he's been healed. And if he's been healed, he's been healed by Jesus. And so what Simon is saying is, I have been healed by Jesus. I am the one who was rejected. I am the one who was outcast. I am the one who was put out. I'm the one that was put off. I'm the one that was banished. And I'm the one that for all intensive real purposes was basically dead to this whole community and to this world. But Jesus Christ came along and he said to me, Simon, get up, you're clean. And I got up and I was clean. And I want to have Jesus in my house. Isn't that the way it goes? Can I just tell you something? If you come to know Jesus and Jesus comes to heal you, you'll want him alive in your house. You'll want to invite Jesus to your house every chance you get. So, so Simon the leper's having a dinner party. And he puts Jesus on the guest list. 
We also have Lazarus, though. Now, now, as if cleansing the leper weren't enough, I just told you what Jesus had done for Lazarus, didn't I? The dead man's walking and breathing here. And he says, I'm going to go to dinner. I'll go to Simon's house. You say, Jesus was coming? Yeah, I'll be there. I need to say thank you to him myself, Simon. Because he may have fixed them spots on your boily body. But I got one up on you. He, he called me right on up from the grave. Mary and Martha, they, uh, they accompany their brother Lazarus. Because they got something to be thankful to for. You, you, you remember when Lazarus was in the grave, Jesus ministered to Mary and Martha as he came. And he said, I'm fixing to call your brother up out of the ground. He didn't tell them that exactly, but he tried to tell them. They didn't understand it until they seen it happen. And they said, I get what he was saying now. This sickness isn't into death. Even though I thought he was dead, he ain't dead. And so Mary, Martha, Simon, the leper, Lazarus, Jesus, and Jesus' disciples who were with him. And they're all there. But I want us to look really quickly at Mary just for a moment to set the stage for what is about to happen. It's important that we set the stage for what's about to happen. We see Mary, and we find that she is at the feet of Jesus. We know she's at the feet of Jesus because she's fixing to anoint him, and that would have been the, the position that she took prior to anointing someone that she deemed worthy of anointing, and she would have kneeled at his feet. So we find Mary at the feet of Jesus for the task of anointing him. Did you know that Mary is mentioned two other times in the Holy Writ of Scripture? Two other times in the Holy Writ of Scripture. John eleven thirty two. Do we have that one, Miss Loretta? Is that one that we got? John eleven thirty two. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell where? She fell down at his feet. Saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary saw Jesus. She's mentioned three times in Scripture. Here we see in John eleven thirty two 32 that when she saw Jesus, she went straight to his feet. She bowed straight to his feet. Do we have the, uh, do we have the next one from Luke chapter 10, Miss Loretta? Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. This is the other time she's mentioned. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. A certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who did what? She also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with serving. She approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered, said to her, Martha, 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 you worry and trouble about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Every time that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is mentioned in Scripture, we find that she makes her way to the feet of Jesus. She makes her way to the feet of her master. She makes her way right down there. She says, in three times, I'm going to be mentioned in Scripture, and I'm going to make sure I'm in the right spot both times. If I ain't going to get but three spots in the Bible, I'm going to make sure I'm right here at the feet of the master. And we find Mary at the feet of the master. Now, she's rebuked for getting at the feet of the master. She's rebuked for getting where she's supposed to be. People don't understand it when you make your way to the feet of the master. Her own sister said, why in the world, Jesus, would you get on to her? How many of you have multiple children? Daddy, could you get on to him? Yeah, that's what, that's what Martha's doing right here. Jesus, could you fix her? I'm trying to fix a meal. We're trying to have a party. And she needs to help me. People are coming. What did Jesus say? What you worried about all them people for? Now, he didn't say this. This is Jasonism. He said, why are you worried about all them people? I'm here. I'm the only one you need to focus on. 
Don't you take away from her what she's doing. She's not busying herself with all this other junk. She's sitting at the feet of her master. She's recognizing who I am. My friends, if I am mentioned in the annals of history, and I likely will not be, but would you do me a favor, and if I'm mentioned in the annals of history, would you be sure to tell them he tried to sit at the feet of Jesus as often he could? Just tell them he's tried to sit at the feet of Jesus as often as he could. And if my life, when you reflect back on my life, if you say he spent time at the feet of Jesus, my friends, I will have lived a life that honors God. I will have done what I needed to do on this earth. Because everything else... You spend time at the feet of Jesus, everything else is just flat, going to take care of itself. He's going to make sure those other things happen the way they're supposed to. So the scene that is set, the scene that is set. Now let's look to the sacrifice and the sarcasm. In verses 3 through 5, we see an event start to play out, and the characters start to kind of reveal themselves. That's why I wanted to introduce you to who they were just a little bit, because they start to, to play out a little bit and start to give, give us a little more picture of them and it goes along. So first, we see the gift. We see the, the sacrifice. I think an even better way to put it is we see an act of worship to Jesus. This is an extravagant gift that Mary is bringing to the feet of Jesus. She is coming and laying down an extravagant gift, and it is her worship that she is giving to Jesus. First, look at the description. We see it's an alabaster jar of very costly oil, of spikenard. Another way to translate that would be oil of pure nard. So it would have been a high dollar, hard to attain, something that took some work to get oil. And it was inside of an alabaster jar. Now the bottle itself is a costly bottle. It was used to, the traders would, would take this alabaster and they could polish it and they could really fix it. They could make it really pretty and they would put the fragrant oils inside of it because what, what the alabaster jar did was it was a porous container and so the liquid couldn't get out but the fragrance could get out. And so the traders would have this alabaster jar so that that fragrance would kind of entice you a little bit and you'd want to purchase that from them. So she had one of these good jars from an expensive trader full of this very high dollar oil. In fact, it was so costly. Look what verse 5 tells us about it. Uh, verse 5 says it might have been sold for more than a 300 denarii to be given to the poor. We see that, that this oil is worth about 300 denarii. Anybody in here have any denarii? Okay, so let's try to explain a little bit just how costly this oil is. So a denarii was basically the average wage for a day's work in this time. So when it says that this is worth approximately 300 denarii, you're basically saying that this little alabaster jar of oil would have had about the same value as a person's full year's work. A person could basically work a year to try and purchase this one bottle of costly oil. If you were to look at John chapter 6 and the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, you would see that when he talks to Philip and says about something about providing food, Philip says it would take 200 denarii to feed all of these people. So, so what we know is that 200 denarii would feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And here this oil is worth a full one-third more than that. It's worth 300 denarii. My point is it was extremely costly. Nearly a year's wages, enough to feed 5,000 people with just a portion of its value. 
And so in this act of worship displayed by Mary, we see the cost alone gives us a little glimpse as to that she felt that Jesus was worthy of her very best. Now let that sink in for just a minute. I said that Mary felt that Jesus was worthy of her very best. Let me ask you a question this morning before we move on. Is your life and your worship reflecting that you believe that Jesus is worthy of your very best? Or do you give Jesus what's left over once you've done everything else? Once your family and your job and your work and your commitments get all of you that you can give, is that when you start to give to your Savior? Because what Mary shows us in this extravagant gift, this gift that we're going to see was so honored by God. When she got ready to give that gift, she didn't count the cost financially. She counted the Savior she was giving it to. So it doesn't matter what it's worth. It's worth everything I got because he gave me everything I am. He's worth every single thing I've got. But let's look also at how she anoints him because there's some significance there also. It says she had the very costly oil of spignard, and then she did what? In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, what she do with, this, with the spignard? She broke the flask. She broke the flask. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had a very expensive bottle of stuff, I might be inclined to open that bottle before I gave it to someone as a gift. And I might be inclined to just, just pour out the necessary amount to anoint the person that I was looking to anoint. I, I might not be so inclined with this bottle that cost the average person a full year's wage to just bust it open. Because if you bust it open, what happens? It's all gone, right? If you twist the top and just pour out what you need, you may have some left. You might be able to sell some later or use it again. But this is a symbol. What Mary is doing, it shows us something about her attitude towards Jesus. In that time, if you anointed a king or you were looking to anoint or adorn someone with reverence, you would take the top off and pour it on them, put the top back on saving your oil. And what that would signify is that you may anoint another one day. You may come along and anoint someone else so you're saving what you got. But my friends, what Mary showed when she broke the flask was that this one before me, uh, this one before me, I'm not going to need to anoint nobody else because the king of kings is right here. There's not another one coming that's going to need to be anointed once I've anointed Jesus. There ain't another story coming down the pike that I'm going to want to pay reverence to because once I've given my life to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, there ain't no other God, there ain't no other man going to come along that I'm ever going to need to anoint again. My friends, I'll bust this flask wide open and I'll bust the rest of them open that I might pay honor and reverence to this Jesus because he's worth it because he's it he's the top he's the alpha the omega the beginning the end he's my creator my sustainer my savior my lifeblood he's my cornerstone my all in all he's my messiah he's the one that loved me when I was unlovable he's the one that died for me even though I wasn't worth it he's the one that plucked me from the grips of my sin even though I wasn't worthy he said my grace is sufficient for you and my golly my friends he is worth busting the all wide open and giving him all you got. He is worthy of your extravagant gift because there ain't nothing coming that will ever be worth anointing once you've seen King Jesus. Now it says here she anointed his head. If you look at some other gospel writers' accounts of this story, 
They say she anointed his feet and wiped it with her hair. So which is it? Yes. She poured it all out. Hands, feet, Jesus, whatever else I can anoint. Let me give it to you. I want to give you my extravagant gift of my worship. And so this sacrifice is seen. But look at verse 4. What happens? Always somebody, isn't it? But there were some who were indignant among themselves. Come on, guys. These are his disciples. And if anybody on this world, they've been walking with him two, two and a half years now of his earthly ministry. They'd seen blind people see and dead people walk and lame people move and and everything else, they'd seen him heal people and save people and do things. He had, he had called uh, someone back to life without even going to their house. If anybody ought to understood an act of worship, it ought to have been the disciples. But here they are. And here they see this woman pour out what is an extravagant gift of worship. And you know what they immediately do? What in the world is the matter with her? What's her problem? She poured it all out. Golly. And they start, it says indignant. That word literally means they were angry. They was mad. You know why I think they was mad? I think they was mad because they ain't never give Jesus an extravagant gift. And here this woman did it in front of them. They were, they supposed to be followers. They'd never give themselves. You ever notice that? Somebody that ain't never give themselves in worship to Jesus, when, when you give yourself in worship to Jesus, they look over and go, what's the matter with you? So I don't know how you feel about this guy, but I love him. Yeah. I don't know what he did for you, but he saved me. I'm going to worship him. And I, you know what? I just don't care if you like it or not, big guy. Make fun of me if you want to. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to take somebody with me. Maybe if you'd get off your dead rear end, you'd take somebody with you too. Somebody always gets aggravated, don't they? And that's what the disciples do. They're angry. They start to raise a question. And can't you just hear them? Oh, I can just hear them. Wasting that oil. Don't you know what could have been done with that oil, Mary? You poured it all out. I mean, it's all right you wanted to anoint him. I get it. Anoint him. He saved your brother. But you've poured it all out. Do you know what could have been done with that oil? I mean, according to John 6, we done said it could feed thousands of people. 5,000 men plus women and children with just 200 denarii. It could have been sold, fed 7,500 men plus women and children. You could have fed 10,000 people, Mary. And here you've just poured it out all at one time on one dude. What is wrong with you? Now, here's the problem, though. Because this sounds reasonable on the surface, doesn't it? This sounds like something we might get on board with, right? Well, surely Jesus wouldn't want all that oil poured out if it could feed 10,000 people. Surely Jesus would rather you feed somebody with it. He didn't need to be anointed, did he? He was already the king of kings whether she anointed him or not. He was already the savior whether she anointed him or not. So, so surely we could see where the disciples are coming from. But here's the problem. There's something going on with what their reaction is. And one of those things is that they hadn't grasped yet what the Savior had been teaching. They just hadn't grasped what Jesus had been teaching and preaching. Mary is showing something to us here. She's showing us that her time at the feet of Jesus, the time that she spent down there 
just listening. If she was at his feet, he was likely talking. And so she's sitting at his feet picking up the words that he's putting down, so to speak. And she's starting to grasp who this Jesus is. And here these disciples are who had been walking with him and working with him and seeing what he was doing, and they just didn't get who he was. <coughs> they just didn't grasp that he was really the Messiah, the King of Kings. They hadn't grasped that he was to be cherished. They didn't understand that he was to be worshipped above all things. But they had something else going on. You see, the custom of the Jewish people, and these disciples would have been Jewish people, the custom would have been that around this Passover feast, they would have made an effort to give alms to the poor. They would have made an effort to help the poor and the needy. And so in their mind, what they've got on their mind, remember this trip for them is about going to the Passover feast. For Simon the leper and Lazarus, Jesus, Mary, this is a worship experience. But for the disciples, it's just to stop to eat dinner on the way to the Passover. And they start to signify that with their attitude. Because see, their, their mindset would have been, we're supposed to help the poor around the time of the Passover. And here you've done, Mary, you could have given that to us and we could have helped so many poor on our way to the Passover. We could have checked off our religion box for this week if you would have just given that to us. John's account of the story goes even further and says that Judas Iscariot was the ringleader of this sarcasm. And, and, and we know what his ending is, don't we? But it says that Judas was the ringleader as he was the one who controlled the treasury. But John's gospel goes on to tell us that Judas was a thief. He took the money out of the treasury. So even though he's saying, I wish that you would give to the poor, what he's thinking is 300 more denarii in there would have been 75 more in my pocket. I could have skimmed right off the top. He wasn't even concerned with the poor. But ultimately his greed would be his undoing, wouldn't it? Well, we're just a few days away from this greedy, greedy thief trading and betraying his Jesus in exchange for a few pieces of silver. And so here we see this extravagant worship, one that is just so called up in worship. And we see the sarcasm of the people who are just looking and belittling her for her act of worship. In the disciples, we see something. I think we see it today. Have you ever noticed the people that are quickest to point the finger when somebody's giving it all to Jesus? are the ones that don't give it all to anything. Here's what I mean. Have you ever heard? It drives me insane when I hear people say this statement. Well, if that church just quit building them buildings, they could feed all the poor people. That church, if they wouldn't build that new building over there, they could, they could feed all the poor people in the world. You know what I want to ask that person who says that? How many poor people did you feed this week? How many poor people would you feed? If you're willing to point at the church and talk about them wasting money and not feeding poor people, you must have an impeccable record of giving to the poor. And say, so, well, I don't, I hadn't, I, I mean, I, uh, well, I'm poor and I fed myself. You ever notice that the people who don't give their all are the first ones to pick on somebody that does give their all? And that's what we see with the disciples here. And I think that's the biggest thing we see from them. We see their attitudes in the wrong place. They see somebody give it all and not count the cost. And they say, I don't know that we've ever done that. And that makes me mad that she's done it. She must, must got something that I didn't got. So first we see the scene that is set. Next we look at the sacrifice and the sarcasm. But finally this morning... Let us dive into the statement of the Savior, the statement 
of the Savior. First, he starts in verse 6, and he says this very elaborate statement. Very, very difficult to understand this. He says, leave her alone. Jesus, trying to make sure he speaks eloquently, he says, hey, back off, boys. You don't see what's going on here. What she has done is a good work for me. Now, I want to be clear. This is in no way Jesus being calloused to the poor or the needy. That would be contradictory to Scripture. And Jesus can't be contradictory to Scripture because he is holy. Remember, we spent a whole sermon last week recognizing that Jesus is holy. God is holy. Therefore, God is holy. God is faithful. He cannot contradict himself. Scripture never contradicts itself. So when Scripture says in Mark 10 that Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you need to sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. When it says in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11 that you should open your hands wide to your brother in need, we see that, that Jesus doesn't have any lack of compassion for the poor. He doesn't have any lack of compassion to give to people. So when he says, leave her alone, he's not saying, I don't care about the poor. I want to make sure she anoints me. That's not, that, that's not even close to what he would be suggesting in this statement. But keep in mind the custom of this time that they would have been wanting to give to the poor in light of the Passover feast. And look at what Jesus says in verse 7. You have the poor with you always. and Whenever you wish, you may do them good. Jesus is pointing out that their motive is not about helping the poor. Their motive is about checking off another box. Their motive is about accomplishing one more thing on their way to the Passover. And he says to them, the poor, the poor's going to be there always. But I'm not. You could have helped the poor all year long if you'd been concerned with the poor. If your heart was for the poor people that you so claim that she's wasted this oil with, you could have been feeding them all year long. You could have been taking care of them all year long. You can take care of them forevermore. Can I just tell you that was a prophetic word from Jesus 2,000 years later? We still have people that need help. We still have people that need to be fed. We still have people we need to take care of. And we still need to do a better job as His church of doing that. We still need to be reaching people with his hands and feet. He said they'd be here forever, and Jesus was right. I knew he'd be right because he's always right, but I just want to point out to you that it played out that again he was right. We've still got the poor to take care of. And he's basically rebuking his disciples with this statement. The poor are going to be here forever. You could have taken care of them all year long. You don't care about the poor. You care about your own standing. You care about doing the thing that's going to check off that next box, that's going to allow you to go to your celebration correctly. If you grasped what was happening, if you understood what I've been preaching, disciples, if you understood what was going on, you'd understand that I am not going to be here forever. Verse 8 says, she has done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now Luke 24, 1 through 3. Real quickly. What's it say? It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb to bring the spices which they had prepared. Here we have the women coming to the tomb of Jesus with the spikenard and the spices that they had prepared. Look at verse 2. What did they find? Stone was rolled away from tomb. But look at verse 3. It gets even better. They went in. They did not find 
the body, Lord Jesus. Hang on with me. What did Jesus say in Mark 14? She's done what she could. She came beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Jesus is basically saying here, and they're just not getting it. He's saying, guys, you need to leave her alone. Because if she was ever going to anoint my body, she didn't need to wait till that tomb. Because when she gets there, when those other women get there, I ain't going to be there. When they come to anoint my body and make me not smell bad, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be walking on the Emmaus Road preaching to some brothers. I'm going to be walking on the Emmaus Road. I'm going to be making my way back to the, back to the sea to feed you breakfast. I'm going to be doing an awful lot of things, but one thing I ain't going to be doing is laying in that tomb. If she's going to anoint my body, she better do it now because I'm going to a cross, I'm going to a tomb, but I ain't staying there, boys. Y'all can watch it happen. Y'all can do what you want to do. But if she's going to give this gift to me, she understands that now is the time to do it. If she's going to worship him, it's now that she has to do it. Look what, look what Jesus says in verse 9. I love this. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done, will be told as a memorial to her. Wow. Can I just point something out? It's 2017. This happened over 2,000 years ago. And right here in Lebanon, Tennessee, half a world away from where this happened, 2,000 years later, When this gospel is preached, this silly little preacher is standing up this morning still memorializing this extravagant worship that this woman gave to a Savior. And you know why? Because Jesus said that's what was going to happen. Jesus said, this gift that this woman has given me of extravagant worship will be memorialized from now on. Anytime people preach this gospel, they're going to talk about Mary And this gift that she gave. So how do we respond this morning to this word? First we need to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. That's what we need to do church. We need to spend our time sitting at the feet of the master. Soaking up every word that he has to say. We need to recognize that Mary did. That Jesus is the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He is so worthy of our worship. Not just some worship. Not just the worship that we feel comfortable putting on when we come to church. Not the worship that we want everybody to see. He is worthy of everything we got. He's worthy of all our worship, all our gifts, all our praise, all our honor, all our glory. And my friends, I said it a few weeks ago and I'll say it again. If he ain't worthy of all you got, he ain't worthy of nothing. Don't give him half. He's worth way more than that. You either get that he's worth it all or you don't get that he's worth at all. So let us recognize this. If we're going to leave a lasting legacy, many people, as they grow, the more I have children and the older my children get, the more I recognize this. You start to get concerned with the legacy that you're leaving behind. You start to get concerned with what the story is that will be told about you through your children and your children's children long after you're gone. You want to leave a legacy that lasts the best way to do it is by giving an extravagant worship to Jesus Christ because that's memorialized for years to come. 
The stories that are told about people that last forever have nothing to do with money. They have to do with worship. How that person loved Jesus. How that person gave it all to Jesus. How that person changed lives by loving Jesus. So maybe you need to come this morning, sit at the feet of Jesus and just tell the master, I want to give my life to you. I want to give it all to you. I've been holding back, Jesus. I've been holding something for my own, and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to give an extravagant gift of worship to Jesus. Maybe your view of your possessions has held you back. I know a man who got saved when he came into a right view of money. He began to realize what money truly was, and he gave his heart to Jesus. He realized that his clinging to his finances had kept him from coming to know Jesus. Maybe you're clinging to something this morning. You haven't been giving it to Jesus. You haven't been able to let it go. Maybe it's that sin in your life. Maybe it's that problem in your life. Maybe it's that relationship in your life. It's that something you know you're supposed to let go of, and it's stopping you from giving your whole worship to Jesus. Would you come this morning to this altar and lay that burden down and don't pick it back up again? Leave it right here and get up and offer Jesus your extravagant worship. And maybe you need to come this morning. Maybe the gift that you need to give is the gift of obedience to Jesus. I need to do something, Jesus. You've called me to serve. You've called me to teach. You've called me to reach. You've called me to be a part <clears throat> of some ministry. You've called me to be baptized. I was saved long ago. I've never been baptized. You've called me to give that gift of obedience. I've, I, I feel like I need to, to join this church. And, and God, you've called me to do that. And I haven't stepped forward and done that. Maybe you need to make this your time to give your gift of obedience to Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that God has called you to, you need to take care of that this morning because now is the time to take care of these things. If she didn't do it then, she wasn't going to have a chance to do it. Now is the time to give Jesus that extravagant gift. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you so much for what we see in Mary, Lord. A simple servant woman who said, I'll sit at your feet, Jesus. I'll soak it up, Jesus. And I'll worship you, Jesus. I'll give you all, Jesus. God, we praise you for Mary. That 2,000 years later, we can still see that. And we can see that because your word is true and faithful, if we would just give ourselves to you, you will use us, Lord God, in a mighty way. So God, burden the hearts of your people this morning that they would come and worship you at your altar through prayer to you, Lord God. Come and surrender what it is that we need to lay down. And if there's someone here who's never given their life to you, Jesus, and said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be saved. God, would you give them the courage and the conviction to stand this morning and say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. I want to give the gift of my life and receive the gift of eternal life. God, would you do that this morning? We love you and we will give you the glory. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.